look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, it's the Wide Receiver Show. we got Brandon Marshall of the New York Jets and the Arizona Cardinals All-Pro receiver Larry Fitzgerald, two of the best in the business. Now, Brandon Marshall had a well-publicized admission of mental illness, borderline personality disorder, and I asked him who he'd like to apologize to for things he did wrong before he was diagnosed. I think about this all the time, and that's Brian Dawkins. Brian Dawkins was at the end of his career, and we had a great team, and I didn't do my part to help him reach that Super Bowl and get that ring. And I asked Fitzgerald, is there any way he'll play long enough to break Jerry Rice's hallowed records? I don't think the record is attainable. I mean, to think you have to play 15 seasons and catch 100 passes, I mean, like, (laughs) so many things have to go right for you to be able to accomplish something like that. Those conversations and much more coming up. Hey, football fans. We're two weeks into the NFL season. Do you want to redo on your season-long fantasy football draft already? Well, maybe it's time you tried FanDuel. Plus, their Sunday Million Dollar Contest this weekend will pay out at least a million dollars in prizes. This year, there's an upgraded experience. You can try beginner contests for new players only. Settle a score with a friend in a head-to-head contest. Even play for a dollar. There are choices for every budget. Pick a contest, choose your team, watch your score in real time. Try FanDuel now and get up to $50 in free entries. New users who deposit will get five free entries to NFL 50-50 beginner contests, valued at up to $50. You'll get one free entry a week for five weeks. The value of those free entries varies on your deposited amount. So go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and use my promo code MMQB. That's fanduel.com, promo code MMQB, and it's void where prohibited. Back in the podcast here in New York City today with Brandon Marshall, wide receiver of the New York Jets and a bit of a multimedia guy himself. <laughs> uh, he does Inside the NFL at Showtime. You know, what is really interesting about your career is that, you know, you have been in four places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And every one of the four places you have excelled. And I've always wondered this about you. So are you happy that you've had all these experiences? Or does part of you wish that you would have been a 15-year Denver Bronco and walked into the Hall of Fame as a Denver Bronco? That's a great question, Peter. Um, Part of me wish I had a 15-year career in Denver and retired right there you know when you look at the personal side of things i do appreciate being able to be in some of the finest and best cities in the world i've been in colorado lived in the foothills that was a great experience to come home have 50 cattle uh sitting right there you know lockheed martin's right there so we have a bunch of horses just sitting there from you know their backyard i said that was a great experience i was in miami then i was in chicago now i'm in new york so you know, I've had some amazing experiences, met some awesome people, but from a career side, it is a little bit of a bummer because you get a chance to make those awesome relationships with people, not only your teammates, but people in the building, and then all of a sudden you're trading, you're gone, and you have to start all over. When I was younger, it was easier, uh, but this last time around really affected me a lot. It took a while to get over that trade. You mean getting traded from Chicago to New York? Yeah, it was a tough one. You know, and it Did was, you love Chicago? Absolutely love Chicago. Where'd you live in Chicago? Right downtown. Wow. City boy, man. I, I lived downtown. We had a great experience there. And that was a place where we finally started laying our roots. 
You know, that's, that was a place where I became a man. My wife became a woman and, you know, our marriage just started blossoming and it just felt great. We had some great relationships that from a career standpoint, I was playing well. That was my dream team. When, when you talk about the dream organization, uh, the McCaskies. Why'd you love there. the Chicago Bears? Oh my gosh. I, I think because of the guys. Yeah. The locker room that Brian Orlacker and, and those guys created there. When I got there, I've never experienced anything like that. You know, that was the first time, you know, when I made a play or didn't make a play on the field, I looked to the sideline, I saw Lovey, I saw Brian, I saw Julius Peppers, I saw Lance Briggs and Peanut Tillman, Jay Cutler, Matt Forte, and I said, I do not want to let those guys down. Yeah. That was the first time I felt like I was on a real team or contributed, did my part in the team aspect. So, you know, it was hard to leave that, you know, and when Lovey was gone and fired and, and, and Brian and those guys left, it took a lot out of that organization, and hopefully they get it back to where it was. So the day you got traded to the Jets, what did you feel? Well, I mean, it was a, it was almost like a little crescendo. You know, there was a couple of weeks where, where my agent had an opportunity to go out and, and facilitate a trade and work with other teams. So I, I kind of um, – we kind of did our due diligence and, and talked to a bunch of teams and quarterbacks and, and we found the right spot. And I thought that New York was the perfect place for me. So this is what I thought, and this is the honest to God truth. I thought from, from a professional standpoint, from a career standpoint, football standpoint, it would have probably took two years. I, I thought we had a great defense. We were, our defense would play well. Our offense, we had a young quarterback in Geno Smith. We didn't know what we had besides Decker and myself, so I thought we were going to run the ball and we would be in some games. But I thought year two was the year where we have some success. So hopefully that's still true, but a lot has changed. And then from a personal standpoint, I felt like this was the perfect place for my wife and I for what we're trying to accomplish. Football is just our platform. You know, and I always tell younger guys, football is our platform to uh, really, you know, uh, fulfill our purpose. And... Uh, when you look at New York, it's the number one media market in the world, the, you know, and everyone knows about that and, and the access that we have to everything and uh, having the ability to be on Showtime, you know, and meet so many different people. I thought this was the perfect place for us to push our cause for, and it's been great. Your cause basically is to try to bring attention to mental health issues in the United States, particularly borderline personality disorder. Five years ago, you came out and said, I've been diagnosed with borderline personality yep. disorder. It had wreaked havoc with your life. Mm -hmm. You know, you had never been able to be that sort of peaceful, steady guy mm -hmm. because of borderline personality disorder. Can you describe it and describe what you think it did to you yeah. at the worst moments? So, yeah, it, borderline personality disorder is what I was diagnosed with, but we don't put our foundation in a box. We feel like we not only can be a organization for Chicago or New York or the United States, but we feel like we have a global organization. We're trying to be the preeminent foundation in that community. What we like to focus on is on the other end of the spectrum. That's mental fitness. We like to be proactive intervene early and, and really help our children live a, a healthy life and not deal with some of these issues that I had to deal with or other people in our world or our adults in this world because they didn't understand uh, what was going on in them. And, and the stigma was so huge back then that, and it still is to this day, where people don't want to talk about it. So for me, Are I Are more I found people in the United States today suffering from some form of mental illness or do you think that people have been suffering for decades and decades but just never admitted it never confronted yeah. it they just lived with it yeah well well first yes uh, let me give you some quick numbers here and we all know how big the cancer community is and, and the movement is how they galvanize this whole community and they're doing amazing things helping a lot of people 36 million Americans are diagnosed or affected by cancer. Mental health issues, over 100 million Americans. Wow. There's only 320 of us. And I think that uh, in today's world where it's a production-based society, there's so much technology. We're always on our smartphones. And there's papers that's been written, and, and you can Google this stuff, where let's just look at depression. 
depression is supposed to grow another 20, 30 percent by the end of 2020. This is a really unhealthy Why is world. That? I really believe because of we never turn off. I think yeah. we never turn off, and then I think that we live in a selfish society now, and it's, it's no longer community. Community, we leaned on each other. We talked to each other. We are able to work out our differences because we respected each other because we were in a community. Now it's all about me, 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 and we no longer have the skills to be able to be in relationships, So, which means when problems arise, we don't have the skills, the tools to be able to cope and deal with those pressures. So what we do, we hurt each other. We hurt each other even more. You know, when you talk about borderline personality disorder, for me, you're right, man. It, it it took me years to figure out what was going on with me. I ended up at McLean Hospital in an outpatient program for three months. And you were there in Boston in 2011 for three months being treated. Three months. I was in an outpatient program where I was in dialectical behavior therapy, uh, mentalization therapy, self-assessment. You know, what was it CBT. like for those three months? It was really tough. It was really tough because... You know, I had to dig deep and I had to really face things that, one, I never even knew existed. And two, uh, some things that is really hard to deal with, like to look in the mirror and say, wow, there is some challenges that I have. There is some weaknesses. And, you know, there's a lot of why me that comes up at times. But it was a phenomenal experience. Like It was some of the best times of my life. I met some great people. But being able to go that deep, we're talking about going back to when you're five and six years old and work through some of those issues that may have been holding you back or some of your weaknesses. So for me, you know, I've I always look back at that moment and, and I grab energy from that uh, fuel from that still to this day. So, you know, we're excited where we're at, not only personally, but also with our foundation this is perfect timing for us. We feel like we can be the preeminent foundation in this community. Do you feel like now that is borderline personality disorder something that you have to work on every day? Or after you have confronted these things for three months, now are you at peace for the rest of your life? How, how does I, that work? I would say both. I would say both because now... You know, I, before I still went through the same thing that everyone else went through. I just didn't have the skills and tools to, one, cope with the emotions of it and the stresses of it. And then I didn't have the tools and skills to be able to problem solve and navigate myself through it. So now I continue to go through those same things, but I have the tools. So, yes, I'm better, but then there's still times where, you know, I may get depressed. I may have anxiety or you know, there's so much that goes along with borderline personality disorder, and, I, and I'll bore you guys going through the 265 different ways it presents itself. But I would say there's some things that pop up that, nor, like people who may be healthy and not suffering from borderline personality disorder, may not have to deal with. I'll give you one example. Some people may deal with black and white thinking where something happens and they look at this person like this person's just totally bad or this person's totally good there's no gray so there's times where you know something may happen and I can feel myself going into black and white thinking then I have to use mentalization therapy that th those skills that I learned to mentalization therapy to be able to say okay well this could have happened you know this may be going on this person may have thought that so I, I'm able to use my frontal lobe now <laughs> and think through things and it's really simple things it's the most stigmatized disorder out there but it's the one that's probably easiest to fix and treat did you ever think what would have happened to me had I not gone into therapy? Did you ever have suicidal yeah. thoughts? Did you ever think that you really might harm yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's actually one of the, the things that presents itself in a lot of borderline patients is uh, suicidal thoughts. And then also self-harming is big. But for me, is it, I've never been suicidal or self-harmed myself. But I will say this, if I didn't get the, the help I needed, I, I know I wouldn't be sitting here in front of you still, uh, you know, playing in the NFL, married with two children now and healthy and living an effective life. You know, no telling what will happen. You know, when when something so precious is taken away from you, like for me, football is everything. It saved my life, not because I had the resources and the access to a McLean hospital through the NFL but my neighborhood, that was all I had to make it out. My neighborhood was sports and football was king in Pittsburgh. Football's king. And uh, it gave me that outlet. So if that was taken away from me, 
no telling what would happen. Like what I don't know what the brain would do. The brain is is really sophisticated and interesting. So I don't know what, what would have happened if that was taken away from me. And, and that's one of the things that I would love to see happen. I know that I'm I'm changing subjects here a little bit, kinda. But before I retire, I would like to see our you know the NFL change that policy. You see a lot of guys suffering, whether from addiction or other issues, and when we suspend them. We kick them to the curb. We say, well, you can't be around the facility for four weeks. You, you want the them to be in the facility. They should be to- because think about it. When you, when you have addiction problems or you have uh, issues that you need to work through, you need a support system. There's no better support system in the world than your teammates. Think about that. We see our teammates and we lean on our teammates and coaches more than we do our family members when we're in season. I barely see my wife and my children. My children go to sleep at 8 o'clock. On Wednesday, I get home at 6.30. I bathe them at 7 o'clock, and they're down, and we're putting them in a bed at 7.30, and they're done. They're asleep at 8. You know, and that happens throughout the year. You know, there's a couple days, obviously, where we, we have more time, like on a Tuesday and Monday. You know, if we have a victory Monday halfway through the season, coach may give us it off. But for the most part, I am leaning on my teammates throughout the whole year on, in everything in life. And I just think that's a tragedy what we're doing when we tell our kids, you know, hey, you have an addiction problem. Now go handle it on your own. Here's a place you can call or go to, but you can't come to a facility. No, I need Ryan Fitzpatrick when I'm down. I need Coach Bowles when I'm down. And I, and I think that we just need to be more aware and, and think about some of these issues. Another issue that I like to see change before I retire is every team, it should be mandated that every team have a clinician on site. You mean a mental health clinician? Mental fitness, yes. And that mental fitness coach should be on the first floor right next to the strength and conditioning coach. No longer should it be on the third or fourth floor of the building in a storage room where people are hiding. We need to break the stigma. It's okay. So what I usually do is I tell Dr. Sweet's our guy. I say, Dr. Sweet, I'll meet you every Wednesday. We'll sit down at lunchtime at noon. This is my running appointment. Noon is in the cafeteria. Is he New York Jets he is. mental fitness? What's, what's his I call title? him fitness, mental fitness coach. Yeah. Because it's for me, it's preventative and it's intervening early. No longer will I let it go You know, months without being treated. The longer it goes, the worse it gets. So for me, every Wednesday, noon, lunchtime, I'm sitting there in the cafeteria so all my teammates and coaches can see and they can feel comfortable saying, man, I need to do that. They don't have to sit in the cafeteria. They may go in the office, but I want to break that stigma of people being afraid to walk into that office. This is the MMQB Podcast. QB Podcast. So football's back, and SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to find tickets for the games you want to see up close and in person this season. You know, there's nothing like being in the stadium for the biggest plays of the year. With SeatGeek, it's never been easier to get the seats you want for a great value. SeatGeek has the best deals on every ticket in the house, wherever you want to sit, whether that's the 50-yard line, the club seats, or upper deck. Now, pay attention to this next part because it's really important. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's 20 bucks right back in your pocket. And to get it, all you have to do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app and go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. Then enter promo code MMQB. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code MMQB today. Now let's get back to our guest. With Brandon Marshall here in the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So I want to talk a little bit about football. Let's All do right? it. <laughs> so one of the things, you and I got to know each other a little bit in your third year in the <laughs> oh, NFL. Wow. You were going to play on a Thursday night game. You were with the Denver Broncos, and you are playing Cleveland, in Cleveland on a <laughs> Thursday night. And you have this plan because this is 2008. The country <laughs> is all excited about Barack Obama, yeah. you know, the first African-American president in, in, in history. And so you called me that day and you said, <laughs> what would you think of this plan? And so I, you got to tell me that story and yeah. how this came to be that you thought of wow. this little demonstration that you thought that you wanted to do. Man, I mean, this, I think this story is perfect timing. So what I thought was interesting was 
the country's reaction to Barack Obama. I didn't understand why there was still this black and white issue. You know, there was, well, black people are only voting because it's a black president. Then there was still the, oh, you know, um, you know, blacks rallying behind Barack because he was black. Then there were some whites that were saying, I'm not voting for that guy. And I couldn't understand that. So what I wanted to do was make a stand basically saying that it's not about black or white. It's about one. It's about our country. It's about the USA. This is our president. And so I, had, I came up with this idea of taking a, a glove that was half black and half white and putting my fist up, holding my fist up, saying it's not about black people. It's not about white people. It's about our country being one. And um, so I called to get your thoughts on that because I was young and I didn't know how people would take that. And, and I told you, of course, yeah, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. So so the whole game, man, I have this glove in my pants and I'm waiting to score. You know, I'm waiting for that. Now, let's talk about this game. OK, yeah. this game. You guys are favored to win the game, but you're behind, We're behind. to the Browns We're at the two minute warning. And you're driving. Remember, Jay Cutler is still the quarterback uh-huh. of the Broncos at that time. You haven't scored yet. Haven't you're scored. going down. It's like maybe a minute to go. You're at the 11-yard line. Uh-huh. And the ball's in the air. Ball's in the air. And I see it coming. And it's like, this is the moment. I'm not thinking about winning the game. I'm not thinking about catching this ball. I mean, it was just <laughs> it was the game was in such slow motion at this point. I was like, this is the moment where I'm going to be posterized for the guy who brought the country together. The ball drops in, I catch it, and I'm like, okay, here it is. And I go reach into my pants, and I know everybody was like, what is he doing? Is he grabbing his stuff? And as I'm pulling the glove out, Brandon Stokely comes and grabs me. He's like, no. And I'm like, what? He's like, you're going to get a penalty. And it's going to. You'll get a demonstration penalty. It'll be 15 yards on the kickoff. And we can lose the game. And I'm like, I don't care about that. Let me go. He's like, no, you can't do it. (laughs) So uh, that was my moment. But it's interesting now, you know, we're in a, we're in a civil rights movement. Let's, let's just state the facts. And um, again, this is. Awesome times, I think. You know, a lot of people look at it like, oh, my gosh, you know, our country's unhealthy. You know, this is terrible. But I think about Martin Luther King and everything he went through and stood up for. And I would think that he would be proud of where we're at, you know. Would he be proud of the athletes today, some of them demonstrating on the sidelines? And and let me get this clear so people don't get this misunderstood. The reason why I say he'll be proud is because – Back then, we couldn't dine in the same restaurants, drink from the same fountains. But now we have a black president. We have NFL coaches that are black. You know, I think we've come a long way. You know, I think about all the work that I'm doing in the mental health community and so much change I want to see in policy and our government and in corporation and our families and our school system. And I get so tired. I get weary times. And I'm like, man... How did Martin Luther King devote his life to the civil rights movement and to, to justice and all people? So the thing that always jumps out is like, man, this guy woke up every day getting, after getting knocked down day after day after day. And he never got a chance to see this. Barack Obama. He never got a chance to see how free we really are now. So that's what I mean by you wish that. I, I mean, Martin Luther King had a chance the, to see the, the fruits fruit. of his labors. Yeah, yeah. But but I will say this. This is where I want people to get misunderstood. Like, these problems still exist, though. We still exist. Like, if it didn't exist, we wouldn't have to have the Rooney rule. We wouldn't have to have that. And it's not just black people. It's women. You know, we have a lot of issues going on. It's immigration law. There's so many things going on. But I, what I'm saying is we we made some huge strides. Huge strides, one, some that Martin Luther King would be proud of, but we still have a long way to go. Like what Kaepernick is standing up for, what what all these players are standing up for, what I believe in, what I'm standing up for, they still exist. I had a great opportunity to live on both ends of the spectrum. I lived in a neighborhood where we had one white family, then I moved to Florida where we were the only black family. So I saw both ends of it, and I can understand how people don't understand each other. So I, I say all that because, you know, I think that, you know, with the conversation that's being had now, it's going to push this thing forward. And um, sometimes it takes a little 
controversy. It takes a little pain to get to, you know, a very healthy place. And I, I think we will get to a healthy place. This is good conversations, good times. But people cannot be blind or ignorant to the fact that these issues still exist. So what do you think the end game in that regard is in the NFL? Do you think that eventually you're going to have, you know, entire teams not just locking arms but doing something more demonstrative, uh, whether it be the Black Power salute, whether it be the fist? Uh, where are we going with this, do you think? Wow, it is picking up, right? Yeah. You're starting to see uh, more guys. Um, You're even seeing uh, Megan Rapinoe in, in soccer do I, it with the U.S. women's team. This is what I believe. I believe we'll, we'll really provoke change when our white athletes join in. That's when I think we'll have change. You know, it's interesting to me, and this is tough times. Like, I, I talk to Nick Mangle, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Eric Decker about these things all the time. Like, we're all in tough spots. You know, whatever we say is, is highly scrutinized. Mm -hmm. You know, but, you know, you would think that it's not about, like I said before, it's not about black and white. This is just about justice, and this is human rights. And I just can't understand why it's only black athletes standing up right now. You know, I, I need our white football players to stand up and lock arms with us and say, no, that is not right. You mean what's going on in this country? What's is going not on right. in this country? You know, I find it really interesting that, you know, I think, well, Chris Long is the first one. Chris yeah. Long just said it a couple of days ago. He's the first one to stand up and say, this is not right. 75% of our league is, is made up of minority black guys. I spend my time with these guys. I respect these guys. And if they say these things are true and going on, then I have to respect that and have to try to listen. He's the first one to do that. But I, what I find interesting is no one stood up when we were talking about the senseless murders and deaths and police brutality, no one stood up but African-American athletes. But when the American flag can't get involved, then everyone wanted to have a say. Everyone wanted to jump in and say, well, here's my opinion. Well, we needed your opinion then, and we still need your opinion now. And if we want change, because it's not about black or white, it's about human rights. You know, I, never, I don't see black and white. I, some of my best friends are white. You know, and if it was them in situations and when they are in situations, I'm going to stand up for them and, and fight to the death with them. So, you know, I, I think if we really want to see change, we need both black and white athletes and people to stand together and get things done. It's the MMQB podcast with Peter King. I don't know about you, but I don't like to shave. Honestly, who does? My face looks like I've been in a prize fight after I finished shaving. Got nicks all over the place. And let's face it, razors are super expensive. That is, I thought they were until I got my first package of razors from Harry's. Harry's blades are high-quality, high-performance German blades crafted by shaving experts, and they feel amazing. It's the best shave I've had in years. The really great part is Harry's offers a high-quality shave that's better for your face and your wallet. It's about half the price of the big brands, and they ship it free right to your front door. So why pay 30 bucks for an 8-pack of blades when you can get them for half that at harrys.com? They have a starter set that's really an amazing deal. For $15, you get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three blades. It's called the Truman. Now comes the best part of all. Go to harrys.com right now, and Harry's will give you $5 off your order if you type in my coupon code, KING with your first purchase. See that? Just by typing in K-I-N-G, your price goes from $15 to $10. It's that easy. That's harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter the coupon code K-I-N-G at checkout for $5 off and start shaving better today. In the remaining time we have with Brandon Marshall here on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, two other topics. One, we talked in the spring a little bit about how, okay, so you have so many things you want to do with your life. Yeah. And not just in the media, but with mental health. And you want to affect lives of people, both in football and out of football. 
So this thought always occurs to me. You are perhaps the most physical wide receiver in football. As we sit here right now after week two of the NFL season, you have a bandage on your knee. <laughs> you got what appeared to be, when yeah. I saw your, your knee twisted in a, in a grotesque way mm-hmm. in the Thursday night game against Buffalo, that might have been a season-ending injury. Yeah. But anyway, you're going to be okay, relatively speaking. And so I always wonder this about guys who have so many plans after football. Hmm. How do you look at your mental health 10, 15 years down the road when you're getting hit in the head so much? And do you ever think, you know, I've made a lot of money off this game. Maybe I ought to just take my winnings, take it back from the table instead of pushing it all into the middle and keep on gambling with my, you know, with my head health, trauma. My life. Yeah, with your life. Maybe I should just take it yeah. and go home and everything. So how do you deal with that? Well, first, I wish we can post pictures on podcasts, but we can't maybe just go to mmqb.com yeah. uh, to be able to see a picture. But I think you need to put that picture there for athletes, not really for our, the listeners and viewers but and, and, and the followers, but that picture – to me, is everything because in that moment, my career could have been over. Not just my season or not just the game, but my career could have been over. Everything in my knee could have been gone. Did you what feel if I like was, it was? What if, what, yeah, what if I was in year one, year two, and I didn't make what I've made, then what? And that's the reason why I'm on Showtime now. That's the reason why I take meetings on my day off and, and shadow people and do internships and go to Harvard for their executive programs to learn now. Because if that was the moment where it was done, then I would have already lined up what's next. And that's why our guys are not only mentally unstable when, we, when the game is taken away from us in moments like that, or we retire, or we just we, we don't make it. Is because we don't think about the future. We don't. We're told from little kids, we're told this, or we tell ourselves that all we are are athletes. That's what I'm here for. That's my purpose in life. So you're placed on this pedestal your whole life. You place yourself on this pedestal your whole life saying, this is what I'm here for. But then when the game is taken away from you, the lights are turned off, the checks no longer come in, we're left in ruins. So for me, I think that... All of our athletes should take advantage of this time now, not only to be great athletes, but figure out what they really want in life. What is their real purpose? Because football isn't it. That's just a talent. Football isn't it. To me, all of our purposes are different, but it does the same thing, and that's to help the world and people be better. That's it. Now you got to figure out your place in that. And when you talk about head trauma and thinking about, like, do you continue to push the chips all in or do you say, you know, all right, enough's enough? Yeah, I think majority of the players are thinking that. You know, you have to. I mean, the game You mean is are great. wondering about their yeah, future. The yeah, the game is great. It's done a lot for a lot of us. You know, some of us would be you – no know, telling where we would be if it wasn't for this sport. And, they, and then you also got to think about the life skills and life lessons that you learn through sports and football. You can't learn these these things anywhere else. So football's been great, but it is very it's volatile, you know. And it comes to a point where you have to say enough's enough. But you know, I you know I think it's different for every guy. Brandon, I want to ask you a little bit about Jerry Rice, and I asked this to Larry Fitzgerald recently. He's also going to be on this podcast this week. And one of the things that I wondered with Larry Fitzgerald is. You're now basically five full seasons away from catching Jerry Rice. You're probably six full seasons away if you were the same receiver every year for the next six years, which is probably impossible. But I wonder. Well, it's not impossible. It's not impossible because technology is better and medicine is better. Do you think? It comes down to the heart, and if you're willing to put in the, the work and the sacrifice and have that commitment to go chase it. Yeah, but right now you are, as we sit here after two weeks of the 2016 season, you're 660 catches behind Jerry Rice. A, (laughs) could you ever see yourself playing that long? And B, how about this Jerry Rice? I mean, is that (laughs) 1,549 catches in the NFL? It's insane. I don't know how you did it, man. I, I don't. Can I see myself playing that long? 
Uh, yes, I can. Wow. I can, but I, I don't. I don't think I will. I think I have a couple years left in me, including this one. <laughs> I'm ready to move on to do other things, you know. But uh, I definitely have some unfinished business here, like some serious unfinished business. Okay. So you have a couple of records that I find interesting. One is that you've had more 100-catch seasons than anyone in history. You've got six of those. So what do you attribute that to? Do you attribute because you've had to play with a bunch of different quarterbacks too? Yeah. So how have you been able to go from one team to the next? And you were only whatever – 11 away from having one of those seasons in Miami. What do you attribute being able to be consistently good for so many different teams? It's all mental. It's all mental. You know, we say this all the time, but I don't know if we really believe it, but the game is 70% mental. You know, this is also a talent I think a lot of guys have, and I and I think, and I'm happy that I'm one of them, and that's being able to understand the game, the flow of the game, and understand, you know, what the quarterback is expected, and the offensive coordinator wants, understand what defensive coordinators are throwing at you, and where the zone is, and should you throttle down, should you run through, catching a ball, okay, yeah. That's God-given. You can, uh, you definitely can sharpen up that skill. You know, there's definitely things you can do there. But a lot of it is, it's really easy, Peter. I can help you. Like, if you come work out with me at my gym, I can help you catch 50 balls a year. Because you're a smart (laughs) guy. I'm telling you, when you see cover two and you have a five-yard hitch route, you know that you could just run to the numbers. You got a two-yard split, so you're two yards outside the number. I see the safety get off the hash, and he's 20 yards deep, corners five yards, and he's outside his cover two. And I know I have a five-yard hitch. Run to the numbers. The cornerback is supposed to be in the flat, and he's going to be four yards outside the number. The linebacker is going to drop into the curl zone. So there's a gap right there. When you understand a game that way and you can break it down that way, you can catch 50 balls, and I can help you. You may not get a hundred, <laughs> but I'm 59 years old. I think it doesn't it would be matter. Difficult. No, it doesn't yeah. matter if your body. If you, we'll, we'll make sure your body holds up, and I'll teach you all of those little ins and outs. But doesn't it also? Isn't it getting on the same wavelength with, say, a Ryan Fitzpatrick, so yeah. that he knows exactly some of your mannerisms? Yes. He knows when to throw the ball. You know when you when you turn around, that ball is already going to yeah. be in the air. Well, yeah, it does, and that's an interesting point right there, and I think that's one of the reasons why I've been traded a few times. You know, Definitely from Miami was one of them, and the reason why is because – well, let me back up. The thing that I focus on now is succeeding with character. Succeeding with character. That's what I say all the time. I want to succeed with character. Before I was catching 100 balls, but then my quarterback may be mad at me or I may, may have pissed a few people off because I demand, like, greatness. Like, I, I demand the ball. When it's cover one, everyone in the stadium needs to know not only does the ball coming to me, but I demand that it comes to me. Or we're coming, I'm coming to the sideline and we're going to have a problem. So that was in the past. Now my communication is different. You know, I'm able to demand what do you that na- type of- What do you now, if you don't get the ball, yeah. and you come to the sidelines at the end of a series, what do you say to Ryan Fitzpatrick? I don't have to because I've communicated with him the, the right way throughout the whole week or the whole offseason now. So we're on the same page. His expectations are the same as mine and vice versa. So I know that now I know that he wants to get me the ball. Now I know Chan Gailey wants to get me the ball. They, they think it's healthy for our offense. So I don't have to worry about that anymore of like what do my teammates feel about me, the quarterback, the, the offensive coordinator. I know they want to get me the ball. So now what I do is I go to him and I just, just get on the same page with him. Ryan, what are you thinking on this play? You know, Ryan, this is what this is how I'm going to run a, this route. When I get to the top, it may look a little funky because you haven't seen this little jerky move at the top, but don't panic. So we talk about all these things. We play the game two or three times before we even get to Sunday. So that's why I catch 100 balls. That's why Larry Fitzgerald has been so dominant all these years. That's why Antonio Brown's so good because there's guys like that who demand excellence but they know how to communicate with their teammates uh, the right way, their quarterback the right way, and they're on the same page. For me, it took me five years for me to understand how to do it the right way. Instead of going to the to the quarterback and saying, what are you doing? And raging at him, yeah. It was one-on-one. You're supposed to throw me the ball. I don't understand it. I was five yards behind him. Now I go to him, I say, 
what were you thinking? I was open. <laughs> what are you doing? And I'll slap him on the butt, you know, just play with him, have fun, you know. Um, or I just go and say, you know, what were you thinking on that play? You know, so I'm, I'm able to use different skills and tools to be able to communicate with those guys. I just said the same thing. Like on one, I said, throw me the damn ball. What are you thinking? On the other, I said the same thing, but it was in a good spirit. Like, bro, I was open. Are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. We need to cut you right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, it's it's been fun, man. And, and one of the things that I really appreciate about, the, about this game is that it's given me the opportunity to correct my mistakes. In football. In football. In football. That's why, you know, I, I would love to play a couple more years is because the first couple of years I've done, a, I did a lot of damage. Um, and it's not If you could go control. back to anybody in that period of time and basically say, hey, sorry, wish I could have done it differently. Yeah. Like in your Denver years, is there anybody you wish that? The guy, I think about this all the time. And there's a, there's probably a, a, a list of 100 guys and women you know, like people in the organization, you know, there's so many different people, not just players, but there's men and women in organizations that do so much for us to be able to be at our best on Sunday. But there's one guy that always stand out when I think about this, and that's Brian Dawkins. Why? Because Brian Dawkins was at the end of his career. and We had a great team, and I didn't do my part to help him reach that Super Bowl and get that ring. And we had an opportunity. Josh McDaniels' first year, we started out 6-0. I never understood it. After our sixth win in a row, we're 6-0. and And Josh McDaniels says after our win, he said, I think it was maybe even the Dallas Cowboys. He says, hey, victory money, I'm giving you guys off. And Brian Dawkins, he was like, no, let's keep it rolling. Like, And I'm young, and I didn't understand the sacrifice that it took and it takes to be a Super Bowl champion or to be successful. And I was like, no, I want my Monday off. Like, I want to go party. I want to go hang out. I don't want to come in. I don't want to work. And I never understood. I was looking at this guy like, man, you're a bad teammate. Like, we went off. And then I remember just his commitment, his sacrifice. I remember him coming to me one day in the locker room. It was just me and him. And it was weird. It was just me and him in the locker room, like in the whole facility besides, like, Greek, our trainer. Steve Antonopoulos. Yep. And <laughs> – he comes and sits next to me, and he never said anything to me about the contract negotiations or how I was conducting myself. And he was like, he's like, how are you doing, man? You okay, man? And I got really defensive. But anyways, to make a long story short, the reason why I always think about him, because now I'm in that same position, and I look at this, the guys that way, like, man, I, only, I don't have but so much left in me, and I really want this for so many different people and for, for different reasons. And I see how... Guys don't really understand how significant this moment is, and it's only a moment, and it goes by like that. And that one guy, I was like, man, he was at the end of his career, and I was a jerk. I came in. I didn't get in my playbook because I was mad at Josh McDaniels for telling me yes and no, yes and no on trades and contracts. You know, I was just in a bad place, and I let him down. I let him down. What would you say to Brian Dawkins right now if you saw him? Man, I'll say it right now. Like, I, I stay in contact with Brian now. You know, he's really a good friend. But I never said this. I was actually thinking about writing a letter to him. I was actually thinking about writing a letter to those 100 people that we talked about and apologizing. City, not just those 100 people, but the city of Denver, the city of Miami. And just, I'm sorry, man. Like, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. You know, just, wow. You're just so immature and blind. I didn't understand in that moment how interconnected we all are and how we all count on each other. Like what Brian Dawkins did affected me, my wife, my children. What I did affected his wife, his children. We don't think that deep. It really does. I remember the year Coach Shanahan got fired. We were playing against Jacksonville. This always stood out to me. I had a chance to just walk in against the Jacksonville Jaguars and score. Literally, no one's around me. The ball just dropped. I'm on a one-yard line about to cross. The ball dropped out of my hands. They pick it up. They end up winning the game by like a touchdown. Coach Shanahan gets fired the year after, and I was like, wow, that's my fault. And I thought about that play because we were one game away from making the playoffs, and if we made the playoffs, he had never been fired. And I was like, man, that was on me. 
And I've always looked at it that way. Like, how did I contribute to that problem? And those are the moments that, you know, you really think about it and, and you hold on to. But it's also those moments in the locker room where you're celebrating with your teams. Like, we beat the New York Giants last year. That was an awesome moment. We beat the Patriots last year. We had guys in the locker room and coaches in the locker room with tears in their eyes, crying. Those are the moments you remember. It's not the contract. It's not the stats. It's not Hall of Fame. It's none of that. It's the guys. And when you listen to all the Hall of Fame speeches, and, and that's one of the best times of the football year for me, is when I, we're in camp and we get a chance to listen to all the speeches, you hear the guys say the same thing over and over again. It's the guys. That's most important. That's what I miss, being in the locker room with the guys. It's the MMQB Podcast with Peter King. Hey, everyone. Football season's here, and it's time to get in on the action and play like the pros at mybookie.net. It's the most exciting experience for sports fans. MyBookie features real Vegas odds and incredible player props on every football game. Game already kicked off? It's not too late to play. MyBookie has live games with odds updated in real time. And best off, it's optimized for smartphone users for nonstop action on the go. So go online and type in MyBookie in your browser and sign up today. Use the promo code KING, that's K-I-N-G, to be entered into their million-dollar prize pool. Or if you prefer, just make a phone call, 844-722-2387. That's 844-722-2387. Join thousands of online players already playing. It's the biggest, it's the best, only at MyBookie. Sign up today. Finishing up with Brandon Marshall on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Brandon, last one. So I've always been curious about a guy who plays in the league for a long time and who has a really tempestuous career. I don't even know that have. word. It means explosive, <laughs> yeah. you know, controversial, yeah. all that stuff. So as you sit here right now and just consider what has happened to you in the last decade... If you could, you know, go back and change one thing, do you think it would be trying to get diagnosed earlier? Oh, wow. Man, yes. I, well, I know what happened with me is uh, the pressure and the stresses of having the world at my fingertips, having access to a lot of cash, uh, being able to do whatever I wanted having that pressure of my family thinking that I owed them something. The pressures, my situation was, it's not even close to being unique. 95, 96% of the guys in professional sports or people who are highly successful go through these things. So it's not unique. But I didn't have the skills and tools to be able to cope with all of that. The media, teammates, you know, the pressure, you know, every day being evaluated. And what I've learned is the longer it goes untreated, the worse it gets. So if I was able to pick up those skills and tools, then, you know, I would have saved myself a world of hurt. But I also look at it this way, too. It's like, man, our country is so unhealthy when it comes to our, our mental health. And I, I just thank God that he's using my wife and I uh, as vessels to be able to put a face on it, to put a voice on it. You know, and, and take this conversation from a taboo topic to an everyday conversation. When we started this five, six years ago, no one was talking about it. Now you look up, Urban Myers just came out. He just came out and on Bleacher Report, I think it was, and told his story of how, why he had to walk away. I mean, you know, he was drinking beer and drinking and taking pills every night to go to sleep and how unhealthy he was. The Rock talked about depression. Demi Lovato. Like every day, all of these celebrities and, and, and prominent businessmen and politicians and leaders are coming out telling their story. There's a lot of ground that's been covered in these last five, six years. And we're proud of that. Last one. What do you want your the first paragraph of your obituary to say? <laughs> Man, wow. That's a deep one. I thought you were going to go stay with football. Like, what is your legacy <laughs> in football? But I was prepared for that one. This one not, you know, um... I would say uh, just a passionate, loving man. Passionate, loving man. All in. Whatever he did, he was all in. Brandon Marshall, really appreciate the conversation. Good luck this year. Thank you, Peter. This is the MMQB Podcast with Peter King. 
Well, here we are in the bowels of University of Phoenix Stadium, uh, Glendale, Arizona. I'm with Larry Fitzgerald. Larry, appreciate you joining me on the podcast. So I always tell people when they say, who are the interesting people in the NFL? You're in the first paragraph, and I say, Larry Fitzgerald has the coolest life because in the offseason, he doesn't go just to whatever, the Mexico or to San Diego or whatever. I mean, he's been everywhere in the world. So what fueled your travel bug? Well, as a young man, Mr. King, my parents, we didn't have an enormous amount of wealth, but my parents, both working class, middle class folk, and they would take us all around the country. So it was to the Grand Canyon, it was to Yosemite National Park, it was to Niagara Falls, you know, Lake Okeechobee. I mean, we just kind of did our thing domestically, and that kind of just really you know, spawned my interest of, of travel. And when I finally got a chance to have my own means and, you know, I want to explore the world and I got a chance to go to, you know, now it's been 96 countries. As 96 yeah. countries. Yep, yeah, and, and I love it. And just I try to immerse myself in the culture, different cuisines. You know, I don't do what the tourists do. I have my guy take me. If your mom and dad were going on date night, where would they go? You know, I want to go to places that are off the beaten path and get a, a true authentic experience of where I'm at. Where did you go this off season? Uh, this this off season, my big one. I went to Congo. I went to Kinshasa, Congo. We did a humanitarian mission there for about five or six days with Starkey Heron Foundation. And uh, you know, I, I like to travel, and, and most of my travel is usually wrapped around some type of humanitarian mission. And then I'll kind of do some other things in the area or on the way home. You know, that I that I really want to see that we're in the area, and that's that's kind of where I got my start. So what is the Starkey Foundation and what's your involvement in it? Um, so Starkey Heron Foundation is a, is a company out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, actually a station in Eden Prairie. And their owner and founder, Bill Austin, is my next door neighbor there. And um, he invited me on a mission, I think, in 2007. And we went to India for 14 days, um, fitting hearing aids for people every single day, men, women, and children that are affected. And um, I never knew it was such a major issue until I went with him. But you know, out of all the things that I've done on the humanitarian side, that is the most, one of the most gratifying because somebody sits down in your chair, they can't hear, they cannot communicate, they are uh, completely disconnected to the world. The things that you take for granted, listening to the car horn or listening to cell phone rings, that's absent from their lives. And by the time they get up and they're fit with the hearing aid, you know, their life is and their world is open. And uh, to see the emotions that the families have when it happens, I mean, it's really a. a what are the emotions? Do they cry? Well, I mean, it would be like if you and I brought our child, you know, to just pleading with a doctor to be able to help my son, help my daughter. He can't hear, um, he can't go to school. You know, there's so many things that they're uninvolved in. And by the time that child is able to hear, he's looking around, he can hear. You know, hear the voices and all the things that we take for granted, like the buzzing noise that is generator over here. Just those small things. And you see the mom and the dad and the brothers and the sisters, and they just they just light up. And then the emotions just start flowing. And it's like you lose it and they lose. I mean, it's just <laughs> like it's um, it's really one of the most special things I've done. So tell me, let's figure two or three places that you would think now that is the coolest place in the world that I have ever been. What would be the candidates for those those sights and sounds. One would be Antarctica. I went there three years ago, and I'm I'm sitting there, and I'm I'm around this penguin colony, and um, I'm just imagining like how many people have actually been here. And I finally got a, an estimate. They said oh, less than a hundred thousand people in forever have been to Antarctica. Um, so how I do just, you get there? Um, so there's two ways. You can either sail the Drake Passage through Argent uh, at the bottom part of Chile or, or Argentina, or you can fly into a um, Argentinian Air Force Base there, and that's how I got there. And then we took a boat there for about seven days, and I just went around, went around, and, and saw you know just, just unbelievable sights. Some of the glaciers floating and icebergs, and you know wildlife, and um, it was just really fascinating. Wow! And this next one I would say that's really high on my list is my first international trip. I went to Australia, and I spent 41 days there. I toured the whole entire country, and I went to a place called Alice Springs, and it has a really uh, majestic aborigine feel to it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those ancient settlements where you just feel the spirits and the energy of the people from the past. And I remember riding a motorcycle. I never rode a motorcycle before. I rented a motorcycle, and I drove from Alice Springs to Ayers Rock on a road that I saw maybe one other car in the, in the three hours I was on a motorcycle. All I saw was kangaroos and, and wildlife. And I was thinking to myself, I was riding, like, 
how lucky am I? Like, how lucky am I to be doing something <laughs> like this at 21 years old? And um, that was really a cool experience. And another one I would say is um, there's been so many, but if I had to pick one, I would say it would be um, I took a microplane like over Aguasu Falls in Brazil. And that was really, really a cool experience. What too. is a microplane? It's a, it's a really small plane. There's only two people that can get on it, and it's actually open to the air. So you're flying over. You're feeling the mist like all in your face, and you're looking at one of the, the greatest uh, you know waterfalls in the world. So I was really smooth. Wow, those are fun. Have you ever on any of these trips to the 96 countries? Have you ever been afraid? Ever been scared? No, no. No, honestly, it's and you know, people ask either me by that. a person or an animal. <laughs> no, no, people people often ask me that, and um, it's much more dangerous on the south side of Chicago, <laughs> or in North Baltimore, or uh, somewhere in Dade County, or you know, South Central Los Angeles. I mean, it's you know, America's probably the toughest place you you, you can find right now. Um, you know, but most times you go around and, and you don't mean anything bad. I mean, I've walked to the favelas in Brazil before with no problems. Um, you know, people are genuinely friendly. If you're not coming there to cause any harm or do anything that's going to hurt anybody, you know, most times people are pretty cool. Where's the strangest place that somebody said, hey, you're Larry Fitzgerald? That maybe you're out there for two or three or four days and nobody, they just look at you, you're another person. Katmandu, Katmandu? Nepal. What happened? Yeah. Um, so I was on my way to the base camp of Mount Everest, you know, hiking, getting myself ready. And randomly to some guy, he said, man, you're Larry Fitzgerald, aren't you? That's like, <laughs> out of all the places I would be, that, that, was, that was really strange. But, you know, it's the, the National Football League has an unbelievable global reach. And, and that's really cool to see that our game is continuing to grow and grow. And the visibility of it and our athletes um, are becoming more and more um, known around the world. So... In the short time we have left, I want to ask you, for some reason, I'm kind of possessed by this, and you know because I've asked you this ten times. So there's this record out there that Jerry Rice has for the number of catches in a career. He had 1,549. You started this season 531 catches behind him. You started this season at the age of 33 years old. Is there any way that you can play five more years at a high level, that's part A. Part B, would you even think of doing that? A, I, I don't have any desire to, to play in the five years. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't think the record is attainable, to be honest with you. Just, I mean, to think you have to play 15 seasons and catch 100 passes, I mean, like that. <laughs> so many things have to go right for you to be able to accomplish something like that. I mean, there's some other records, you know, that I, I don't think – you know, will be touched either. But you if know. you finish whatever it is, second, third, fourth on that list in your career, you could lay your head down at the pillow at age 50 and look back and say, I had a pretty good career. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it's to be able to do what I've done for as long as I've done in the National Football League is truly a blessing. Um, you know, when I first got in the league, I just wanted to play. I didn't have any time that I wanted to play, how long I wanted to play. I just wanted to go out there and play and do something that I dreamt about, and um, and I've done that. And, you know, it's really only one thing that, I, that really keeps my fire burner, and that's winning the championship. You know, I'll always remember the postseason you, you had when you guys went to the Super Bowl and what an incredible postseason it was. Not just yards, but just how you were kind of – you were such a difference maker in that playoff run for you guys. And I wonder, when you think back to that postseason that obviously ended in the Super Bowl loss to Pittsburgh, but when you think back to that season, what happened to catapult you guys late in that year after having such a down sort of end of the season? Well, I think it really was that very lopsided loss we suffered to New England Patriots, who was the second to the last game went out to Foxborough. Our buses were delayed getting from, you know, Providence into Foxborough. I mean, we actually walked into the stadium probably about 50 minutes before kickoff, so we had no time to warm up. Just throw your pads on and go. And we went out there and we, we got embarrassed. And uh, that was the year, actually, that Tom Brady was hurt. And they actually missed the playoffs at, at being 11-5 and five that year. And I think that kind of just showed us, you know, the opportunity that we have here in the winning division in 9-7 and seven, get a chance to play in the playoffs. And we can't take that lightly. We have to make sure we're doing everything we can to prepare ourselves for what's to come. We came out the next week, played against Seattle, played a fantastic game, 
And um, I think that momentum from that week, you know, really picked up and, um, you know, it, it, it turned into something really special. This year, 13th year, you've only missed six games because of injury in all these years. When you look at it right now, is it genes? Is it preparation? What exactly is it? Knowing that almost every week you're public enemy number one with the defensive coordinator, that they're going to try to stop you. What is it? What has happened with your body that has made you so able to play every week? Well, I mean, I've only missed that many games, but there's been many, many more that I could have missed. You know, you just playing the National Football League, you understand you have to play through, um, you know, serious injuries, ankle sprains and hamstrings and all these type of things. And, you know, it's a result business. It's about going out there and doing your job and being a professional. You know, I, whenever I'm hurting and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, maybe I might not be able to fight through. I always think back to, you know, moments when my mother was sick, dying of breast cancer. And, you know, I remember holding her hair, you know, when she's throwing up, you know, in the toilet after chemotherapy and her still getting us to school and going to work. It was about, you know, being accountable to people that depended on you. And, you know, I kind of try to take that same mentality, obviously not the extreme of, of, of battling cancer, but there's a lot of people in life that wake up every day and they don't like what they do. You know, I have the distinct advantage of having a job that I really enjoy, being able to work with guys that I really enjoy being around and, and working with something that's much bigger than me, and that's winning a championship. So I keep everything in perspective. You know, I don't take it for granted. I'm very fortunate, and, um, and I just hope I can continue to have that. Last one with Larry Fitzgerald of the Arizona Cardinals. So, Larry, you do a lot in this game and you also do a lot off the field. And I've always wondered, you're the kind of guy that I've always wondered, after your career, you'll be able to have your choice of whatever you would want to do. There would be a lot of options. When you think about 2023 or whatever, what do you think is next for you? Uh, Mr. King, I really don't know yet. You know, I've, I've set myself up to be, you know, able to kind of just sit back, really. Um, I'd love to be able to be more involved with my kids' activities on a day-to-day -day basis. My son's Devin, he's eight, and my son Apollo is three. Um, being able to take them to school every day and attend all their practices and kind of be a father like everybody else, you know, that that would be really cool. But but I have a lot of other interests, you know, in terms of traveling and, and still making sure my foundation work is still out here serving communities and for people that are in need and fostering the hopes and dreams of the youth coming behind me. You know, I always think about one other quote, Chris Carter, I was able to be around him, Hall of Famer of Minnesota Vikings for all those years. And he told me when I first got drafted, he said, Larry, make sure when you leave the game, it's better than when you came in. And so I always think about that. You know, I always thinking, you know, make sure you're doing everything in your power to make this game a better place, uh, make this game more visible, make people want to say, man, these NFL guys, they're good guys. I would, I want to go watch them. I want to turn in, tune in and see them play, and I want to go buy tickets to watch them play. And that's, that's kind of my mindset. So I, I want to tell the audience about one story. I ran Pat's run a few years ago, the Pat Tillman run uh, that's 4.2 miles through the streets of Tempe, ending at the 42-yard line of Sun Devil Stadium. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, you know, if you don't think I'm much of an athlete – I ran the same time as Larry Fitzgerald in that race. I ran it in 42 minutes and whatever, so whatever. And so I always conveniently leave out the detail that you actually pushed somebody in a wheelchair for 4.2 <laughs> miles. But somehow that doesn't quite make the story. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Hey, we, we got there, we finished, and we did it for a great cause. And at the end of the day, that, that's really what it's all about. Larry, thanks a lot for joining me. No, thanks for having me, Mr. King. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King. My thanks to two excellent guests, Brandon Marshall and Larry Fitzgerald. Before we get out of here this week, a few thoughts on the state of rookie quarterbacks. You know, we can sit here early in the NFL season and say Carson Wentz is going to be the next Joe Namath and Jared Goff is going to be a huge bust. But history says that's an idiotic proposition. And I'll tell you why. So Goff, the first pick in the draft, has been sitting on the sidelines in the first two weeks for a Rams team that desperately needs a quarterback of the future. Carson Wentz, the second pick in the draft, has played for Philadelphia, been very impressive, and won his first two games in the NFL. But as I said, it is a fool's paradise 
to suggest that what's happened in the first two weeks of their careers is going to be hugely indicative to what happens the rest of their careers. Let me take you back to 1998. Remember that draft? Peyton Manning, number one. Ryan Leaf, number two. I'll never forget being in San Diego Chargers training camp, late in training camp, and Ryan Leaf was struggling in a big way. And their general manager, Bobby Bethard, told me that Ryan Leaf is going to play. He's got to play. And I basically said, why? And he said, well, you know, we drafted him high. He's a good player, strong arm. And our fans are paying big money to come and see our games. People who sit in luxury seats, they – They deserve to see Ryan Leaf. And I just said, that's not the right answer. The right answer is the player should play when he's ready. Look at what the Cincinnati Bengals did with Carson Palmer in 2003. He basically had a bye season. And that helped him get ready to play very, very well over the last 12 years in the NFL. Who knows what would happen? Maybe he still would have been a really good quarterback. But... The Bengals thought he just wasn't ready, even coming out of USC. You know, history has proven them right. And now, as I look at Jared Goff sitting on the sidelines and I see Carson Wentz playing, I just simply hope that people in Los Angeles, people who love the Rams, can simply be patient. What matters is the next 10 years, not the first 10 weeks. Thanks to my guests, Brandon Marshall of the New York Jets, and Larry Fitzgerald of the Arizona Cardinals. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure and listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Luke Keekley, John Elway, and Michael Bennett. You can find these on the MMQB.com or on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Listen to other podcasts in our series as well, with Albert Breer, Gary Gramling, and Andy Benoit. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors, FanDuel, SeatGeek, Harry's, and MyBookie. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. This has been a Digital Media production. Find your voice.